Hello and welcome to episode 1061 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for The Ringer and I'm joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hi. What's on your mind? Uh, well, let's see. We have a little bit of, well, we just discussed pre-podcast. It's not Louis Robert. It's, I guess, Luis Robert follow-up? Yes. As I saw, reported on Twitter, evidently. That's uh, that's not what I would have gone with, but <laughs> his prerogative. <laughs> it's Yeah, I kind of, I like him less now, just as a player. Yeah. I feel like in my head, I feel like he's worth less just because Luis Robert doesn't sound like the name of a successful athlete, but I guess neither does Albert Pujols. Here we are. Uh, Luis Robert. God, I can't even say that. He's a Cuban teenager. He has uh, been discussed before. I just wanted to bring him up. He has some place in, I guess, effectively wild lore, because Mm -hmm. if I can find this old quote, we talked about him before when he was available. There were two quotes from scouts, one saying that uh, the 19-year-old was quite a five-tool guy that can be in the big leagues soon and there was another evaluator that said quote robert <sighs> robert gosh it's just it's not it doesn't work it doesn't it's robert, he still has time he still has time right you can change your name as you climb the organizational ladder anyway quote yeah sure from mlb trade rumors back in uh february quote an international scouting director for an al team goes even further calling robert quote the best player on the planet and that's no exaggeration well the best player on the planet with no exaggeration signed recently with the chicago white Sox. they beat out the st louis cardinals in bidding for robert (sighs) (laughs) they uh it's just, it just it drains me of energy. He signed for something like 25 to $30 million. He's going to be the last big-time Cuban investment like this. The, uh, the new international spending rules are going in place for the next signing period. So I believe Robert is the last high-profile player to sign like this. The White Sox will pay a 100% overage tax, which means that they just successfully signed the best player on the planet, and that's no exaggeration, for roughly $50 million, which when you look at the fact that the Angels are giving Mike Trout three times that much, way to go, White Sox. I guess they succeeded yeah. here. There's another article where Robert God talks about <laughs> his reason best, and he's he's pretty well spoken for someone who's so young, and I don't have a big follow-up here, but he said, uh, this is from a Ben Badler article that was just posted at Baseball America. This is from May 20th. Robert Escort is saying, when I went to the Can-Am League, home of the Ottawa Champions, when I went to the can he didn't say that part, when I went to the Can-Am League <laughs> and played there, I saw a lot better pitching, Robert said. The quality of the pitching was better. I did well there, and I took that confidence back to Cuba. It was pretty easy from then on. I like that quote because Robert's basically saying, Cuban baseball, no problem. Piece of cake. I learned a lot from the Can-Am League, that hotbed of international talent. In any case, I guess we will find out fairly soon if Robert is the best player on the planet and that's no exaggeration let's see what was Mike Trout doing when he was 19 besides getting very very close to the major leagues yeah he made the major leagues right uh, yes, did, did he not yes, debut did. until he was yeah right uh, so when Mike Trout was 19 years old he did debut in the majors and he was you know fine when Ben Lindbergh wrote an article about his experience there <laughs> Trout incidentally I did not realize that that fall, actually, I guess I did realize because you mentioned this in your article, Trout, very bad in the fall league that year. However, in double A, he had a 958 OPS, so he was outstanding. We'll see where Robert reports to in the White Sox organization. It's not like there are a whole lot of players in front of him on the position player side, and Mm -hmm. that's exciting, I guess, but there's also quotes 
about this from John Mazalak saying, you know, we just weren't comfortable going that high. There's a history of players who have not succeeded despite these big investments and it's impossible to translate the performance, etc, etc, etc. So still the same issues as always. Teams are no more confident scouting Cubans as always, except for that one evaluator who seems to like Luis, Robert, very, very much. Yeah. In fairness to Robert, Trout and Harper were not from Cuba, so <laughs> maybe that would have changed their timelines a little bit. If they had been from Cuba, perhaps they would not have debuted as early as they did. So I guess it's not necessarily fair to compare debut dates, but it is probably fair to compare the fact that Trout is maybe the best player ever. So that in itself probably tells us that he's better than Louis Robert. But we'll see. And Trout has actually gotten better since that quote. So maybe <laughs> maybe even now that uh, scouting director or whoever it was would change his tune slightly. I wanted to ask you, the, the Twins had 21 hits on Monday night, which came in the wake of you writing a, a post about how the Twins have learned to hit, I believe. Mm-hmm. I have not read that post. I just saw the headline. So good timing on your part. What was the upshot? Well, I don't, I don't blame you. See, the headline had the word twins in it, so I don't know why you would yeah, read it. But right. in any case, <laughs> it took some convincing. But as long as the twins are around or north of 500, they are worth writing about. The idea was I was looking at players whose plate discipline has improved the most from last season as measured by things like swinging at pitches in the zone and not swinging at pitches outside of the zone. I know that you have written a few times that you will take a ratio of in-zone swings to out-of-zone swings. I do something similar, yeah. but I just subtract out-of-zone swing rate from in-zone swing rate. I don't think it really matters. Mm -hmm. You'll end up with similar results. So I was looking at an analysis of which players have improved in that regard the most from last season. And I was, uh, I kind of had a hunch I would find Joey Votto. And I was thinking maybe I'll write an article about Joey Votto, except in the top five players who have improved the most since last season, three of them happen to be twins. And so that (laughs) got my attention. And it turned out that every single twins player with at least... 50 plate appearances in each of the last two seasons improved at least a little bit in this measure, which is which means one of two things. One, something is weird with the calibration. The twin numbers are just wrong. I hate that explanation because there's nothing I can do about it. So I ignored it. And the other explanation (laughs) is that they all got better. And so uh, at least a little bit better. So we've seen Miguel Sano, who's just freak like flipping out. He's hitting everything. He's well, I guess he's not hitting everything. He's striking out a bunch, but everything else he's hitting extremely hard. He's like dominating the exit velocity leaderboards and he's dominating the general offensive production category. So Sano has shown much better discipline, but he's not alone. Pretty much everyone in there, even Byron Buxton has swung at better pitches. Jorge Polanco is up there. He's also had better discipline and I already forgot the other player who is doing super well relative to last year but across the board the twins are showing better discipline maybe it's a coincidence maybe it's not that over the offseason they hired a new hitting coach i am never real comfortable crediting hitting coaches with these things because it seems like so much work is done with independent hitting coaches or peers from the industry anyway but Mm -hmm. something is going on and the twins have a better approach they are walking more and striking out less than they did last season and that's interesting and now that they have jose barrios up in the majors and looking like a sensible version of jose barrios as opposed to what he was in the majors last season there's uh, there's kind of something here there's like there's a there's a group of position players and a pitcher which is better 
than a few weeks ago when there were zero pitchers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm always interested in how much a team can improve in one winter and how much a, a new regime, for instance, can improve a team in one winter when that regime is dramatically different from the previous one. So we've seen a couple case studies of that just this season in Arizona, in Minnesota, two sort of old school GMs were replaced by the typical new school GMs and we got to see these teams doing things differently and I don't know how much of the Twins improvement this year from worst team in baseball to over 500 for now you can credit to that but I always think back to this quote of Phil Birnbaum's the sabermetric writer who wrote I think a few years ago that you gain more by not being stupid than you do by being smart. Mm -hmm. So just going from like last to decent is easier than going from decent to best or whatever, going from really good to best. And so that kind of applies in the twins case because it just seemed like they were doing things so wrong in some ways, whether it was not really pursuing strikeout pitchers or not effectively pursuing strikeout pitchers and coupling the pitch to contact staff with a lousy defense and having the worst framers over the previous five seasons and just all these things that it's fairly easy to correct. It's fairly easy not to have a terrible framer (laughs) these days. And it's fairly easy, I guess, not to design your team such that the defense and the pitching staff are completely mismatched the way the twins were. So I don't know how much credit you can give Derek Falvey and Thad Levine and the new order in Minnesota for this, because it's not like they signed an entirely new team. They signed Jason Castro, of course, that helps with the framing. They promoted Barrios again, but that's something that was going to happen again. So, you know, and they didn't do something weird like try to play Miguel Sano in the outfield, <laughs> which was something that that happened last year for a mercifully brief period. So I guess they just haven't done anything obviously dumb like that. It's not like they've made incredibly brilliant moves. It's mostly the same team that was there before, but they've kind of polished it and deployed it in a smarter way. And that has thus far helped them go from absolutely terrible to pretty decent. Yeah, I know one of the uh, analyses I would end up talking about like every single winter when I would write about the terrible Seattle Mariners was that you would go through and look at the season that just was and you would find all the black holes on the roster and you'd be like okay well maybe the team won't be able to add stars but at least they can plug up those black holes and of course the problem that you run into especially when you are a bad and backwards organization like the Seattle Mariners that you just end up having new black holes that reveal themselves but you know the one of the ideas with war and elite talent is that there are fewer and fewer players available as you get higher and higher talent levels but that just means that it's easier to find decent players and that you should be able to plug any sort of troublesome areas with at least decent talent what's interesting about the twins at least on the position player side is they didn't really change much from last season they kind of kept a lot of the same players around aside from jason castro so for them it's kind of more internal development slash also Robbie Grossman, who's good now, I guess. I don't know (laughs) how that happened, but he's sort of like a much lighter hitting but higher walking J.D. Martinez, I guess, where the Astros (laughs) Uh thought they had something and then they didn't and then he went and was good. 
somewhere else. So maybe in the most desperate of all mid-August days, there will be posts to be written about Robbie Grossman. But you look at the twins and Miguel Sano, internal, young, really good. Robbie Grossman, he's gotten better. Max Kepler, Jorge Polanco, Brian Dozer, I guess, is not so young, but still internal guy. Joe Maurer is still internal guy, but there's there's so much youth here, and the Twins are five games over 500, and Byron Buxton still has a 45 WRC plus, like he's been better lately, but he hasn't been good. Jose Barrios has made a couple really good starts, but so far only two. So the Twins have gotten to this point where they are competitive, in fact, leading the American League Central, and so far only Sano of their like big three young talents has, has been super good. So if Buxton improves and he we at least know he can play good defense and if Barrio stays in the rotation, there's really there's something here. And maybe because the Twins did so little over the offseason in terms of bringing in new talent, it was easier to write them off. Maybe I'm guilty of that as well. But there was enough youth in there that really it's kind of felt like they would go as far as Sano, Buxton and Barrios could take them. And well, now one of or. I guess you could say all three of them are starting to make contributions. Yeah. Zach Cram wrote about them for The Ringer today, too. If anyone wants more Twins information, he <laughs> focused on the defensive turnaround. All right. So I just went to Fangraphs and I noticed two new Instagraphs posts, which have to be by you. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't clicked on either one, but titles are What in the Heck Has Gotten Into Chad Pinder? And one guy gets more chases than Andrew Miller. Those are those have to be Jeff <laughs> Sullivan headlines. I'm guessing Daily Prospect notes 523. Probably not nope. a Jeff Sullivan Instagram post. What's the? Is there like a Instagrams post to Fangraphs post exchange rate for you? Like if you do two Instagrams posts, is that equal to one main post in in your workload? Yeah, the idea is that every every week I write two full size posts, and then Friday I will have one uh, one post and a chat. The way that that evolved is that on Mondays, it ends up being one front page post and two Instagrams posts. This was hmm. an idea uh, Dave Cameron and I came up with because Instagrams, in theory, are easier than front page posts. And also, we wanted to give a jolt to the Instagram section. Well, the I don't know if the Instagram section has really gotten a jolt. And I'm not sure if coming up with a topic for an Instagram post is actually easier than coming up with a topic for a front page post. But here we are. This is what we do. So Mondays can be quite long, but we've got Chad Pinder content and much <laughs> highly sought after Anthony Swarzak content. So if you are curious about a, a very interesting young offensive Oakland athletic and a journeyman middle reliever who's succeeding with the White Sox, I can tell you right now or at least as of Monday afternoon, Chad Pinder, who I don't know if anyone knows who that is. He hasn't been a <laughs> non-prospect, but he hasn't been a great prospect. He kind of like sounds like a second baseman, you know, in the way that most of the A's do. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he is a second baseman. But uh, he has ranked second on the early season average exit velocity leaderboards. So it goes Miguel Sano, followed by Chad Pinder, exactly as you would expect. Chad Pinder also has dramatically cut down on his ground balls from last season, combining performance in the minor leagues and the majors. So Chad Pinder could be one of those fly ball revolution guys. And as for Anthony Swarzak, look, you don't have to click the post. I don't expect anyone to click the post. It's a post about Anthony Swarzak, but you notice his name is not in the headline because no one's going to click on a headline about Anthony Swarzak. You're going to click the one about Andrew Miller. <laughs> 
But uh-huh. Andrew Miller currently ranks second in baseball in the uh, rate of pitches out of the zone that get swings. That's what you'd expect. Andrew Miller has just that's just the way that he pitches. He warps the way that hitters see the strike zone. Well, what would you believe that number one in front of Andrew Miller is Anthony Swarzak, who is a a minor league contract spring training NRI acquisition by the White Sox in January. I guarantee you Swarzak signed with the White Sox because he thought, well, this is one of the few places I could get an opportunity. Uh, He's 31, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, almost 32. He's just like a middle reliever with the White Sox who already have David Robertson and an injured Nate Jones. Well, the White Sox seem to have fixed Tommy Canley, and now they have Anthony Swarzak throwing exclusively fastballs and sliders exclusively to one quadrant of sort of the strike zone. He throws everything low and to the glove side. He's a righty. Everything goes down there and hitters don't know what to do. He's dominated righties. He's dominated lefties. And all of a sudden, the White Sox could trade David Robertson, Nate Jones, Tommy Canley, and Anthony Swarzak and very legitimately sell them all as like good high leverage relievers, which is bizarre. But this is where we are. Anthony Swarzak, he's really good now. I don't know why, but that's what's happening. Don't invest in relievers. Well, I joke about you writing about pop-up relievers, and I joke with Michael Bauman about how many relievers we have on our other podcast, and that is, I guess, the hidden benefit of every team having like 12, 13 relievers. <laughs> it's just there's bound to be an interesting one here or there, and like Anthony Swarzak has pitched how many innings? He's pitched 19 and two-thirds mm-hmm. innings, so Not if he were... Little. Yeah, I'm, no, I mean, sure, it's fine. If if he were a starter, though, that would be maybe three starts or something like that, and we might not even notice if he did that over three starts if it weren't his first three starts of the year or mm-hmm. even if it were, but because it's a reliever and he does it over six weeks or however long we've had a season – it's more notable or it's worth writing about. It's a higher percentage of his season. And so it's a boon to people like us, I guess, just given that we have all these players to choose from now. And we also have these stats that become significant and telling in small samples. So you can write about Chad Pinder after 30-something batted balls without feeling like a fraud or something, just going by his slash stats or whatever, because his underlying numbers are also impressive, and you can do the same for Anthony Swarzak. So I guess <laughs> this is uh, this is nice if you are obligated to churn out as much content as you are. Yep. <laughs> I'll also note, I nearly wrote a post about Tyler Clippard. I just avoided that one uh, just by the skin <laughs> of my teeth, but... Uh, I don't know if people remember the the Yankees obviously had a little bit of a bullpen sale last summer and they kind of hung around in the race still. And Gary Sanchez was a big part of that because he was freaking insane for the last two months of the season. But they also added Tyler Clippard to the bullpen and Clippard to that point hadn't been very good. What was he with Arizona or something earlier last season? I don't remember exactly where it was. It doesn't matter. But Clippard went to the Yankees. He stayed with the Yankees. He's still with the Yankees now. And oh, by the way, he's super dominant. And ever since he joined the Yankees, since the start of last August, he has an ERA of two. His strikeouts have come back. His contact rate this year is really low. He has, for some reason, the lowest contact rate this season on his fastball, which is not 
a good fastball, but that's what's happening. So Tyler Clippard, another not really pop-up reliever, but reliever formerly of interest, who is of interest again. This is all to say that I've avoided writing the Kimley Jansen post that would be actually interesting <laughs> and that people would care about. Yeah, well, as someone pointed out, he did allow a home run and his FIP is now positive, or it was after we talked about him over the weekend. So slightly less fun. You know what? And how many times have people tried to get me to write a Jason Vargas post? Well, guess what? Nine (laughs) runs in his last 10 innings. Jason Vargas is just Jason Vargas. He's the same guy. Nothing has changed. He's not worth a post. Never has been, never will be. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about something that both of us have written and talked about a lot, but not a whole lot lately. And I realized that when we got an email from a listener the other day who asked us if catcher framing was real, basically, <laughs> like if it if it's a real skill, if we believe in it, that sort of clued me in that we haven't really talked about it or, or written about it much at all this season. And there are a couple of things worth noting. I wanted to talk about one of them because I just wrote about it and there will be an article up by the time you are hearing this probably, but it's someone that we've both written about a bunch over the years, Jonathan Lucroy. Yes. Who, yeah, is uh, having another extremely anomalous receiving season. And I tried to figure out what is going on here because it's kind of amazing. As recently as 2013, Jonathan Lucroy led the major leagues in runs saved from framing, according to Baseball Prospectus' stats. This year, he leads the major leagues in runs lost from framing. So he has gone from best to worst in the span of four years or so. And it's been a, a gradual descent for him. He was incredible early in his career. He has gotten less incredible over time, but he was at least above average up until this year and has suddenly completely fallen off a cliff and the Rangers have the worst team framing stats in the majors hasn't hurt them lately. They win every day, but still (laughs) they do. And uh, their pitchers have been behind in the count more than any other team's pitchers, but the Rockies, I think. And that's not entirely Lucroy's fault, of course, but it is partially Lucroy's fault, presumably, if he is consistently not gaining strikes or losing strikes or however you want to say it. He is putting his pitchers behind in the count. And he has, according to BP's numbers, cost the Rangers about eight runs so far which is a lot in this day and age and this early in the season. And he's like a a few runs or two and a half runs worse than any other catcher and also very bad on a rate basis too. So this is uh, odd. And, And of course, he got off to an extremely slow start offensively. So if you look at his BP wins above replacement player, which does account for framing, unlike the wars at other sites, He's been about replacement level so far. And, of course, his offense has gotten much, much better. He's probably going to be above replacement level soon. And the other win value stats will probably have him as a pretty decent player before it's all said and done. But it's hard to be a very valuable catcher, no matter how you're hitting, if you are the worst framer in the majors. So wanted to see what is going on here because as you have written you wrote in your hardball times essay last year 
Part of it is just that framing values have become compressed all over baseball because the bad teams have gotten better, the bad framers have gotten better, or they've been replaced by good framers, and there's just less variation between teams now than there was several years ago. There's less of a gap between the best framers and the worst framers today than there was several years ago. And so even if Luke Ray were doing exactly the same thing he was doing in 2010, 11, 12, and had exactly the same technique, his framing value would still be lower just because those things are relative to the average catcher and the average catcher has gotten better. And so that's probably a big part of the reason why we haven't talked about framing at all this year is just because it's not really as sexy a subject anymore. Everyone's aware of it. And there's just less of a separation between teams. So it's rare that you get one guy making as huge a difference as he would have several years ago when we were just starting to discover this stuff and writing about it on a weekly basis, seemingly. What's really interesting, there's so much you can say about Lucroy. I mean, he's he's got some sort of injury background. There's the framing stuff and mm-hmm. even offensively there aren't very many players who have changed more than he has <laughs> yeah. even he had as you mentioned he had a, he got off to a terrible start at the plate and his he's batting 357 in may his offense has taken off but he's yeah. still turned into this weird like almost extreme ground ball hitter yeah which is not at all what he's supposed to be but at the same time doesn't he's, walk doesn't strike out yeah he's basically stopped striking out last year he struck out for uh, the most that he had since his sophomore season. He struck out just over 18% of the time. Not bad. And he walked just about 9% of the time. He's cut his walks in half and he's cut two thirds off of his strikeouts. So he's hitting everything and he's hitting it on the ground. And it. Just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Jonathan Lucroy. I was. I nearly wrote a post about just him last week until I decided to make it more about the Rangers overall because they've had a handful of supposedly really good players who have had strange underproductive seasons but Lucroy yeah. at the plate fascinating because you never see these big strikeout dips but then the framing thing is just far and away the most interesting and maybe the most interesting because it's the hardest to explain his decline has been fairly steady I think what the last two mm-hmm. years he's been right around average maybe a little bit better but mm-hmm. he had a, a steep drop off and then he was something like average and he stayed at something like average a little bit better. And now, yeah, like you said, he's he's been the worst framer in baseball. And I think there's enough there's enough disagreement over the true value of framing in that it's hard to see in the team numbers that if it's so hard to understand how something is really important, it's even more difficult to understand what it looks like when a player gets worse because we yeah. only see those trends in the numbers. And I don't know... When Mike Fast was was writing up his original pitch framing research, and he had some videos of I think Jose Molina, and I'm not, I don't mm. remember if it was Ryan Domit, but let's just assume it was Ryan Domit. Yeah, it was. The, I think. Uh, yeah, of course <laughs> yeah. it was. As the what not to do examples, and Mike Fast pointed to like head movement and some arm mm-hmm. movement, and and there were little things that Fast pointed out that I think have stuck with a lot of people as little clues of what to look for. So I know whenever I'm looking yeah. at framers, I'm always watching the head now. And there could be any number of things. There's posture that you have to look at. And I've never watched baseball from an umpire's perspective. I've certainly never caught a pitcher because that sounds horrifying. But (laughs) I guess I just don't know what 
you actually are supposed to look for. And I can't imagine why Lucroy would get worse. I don't have an answer for it. I At one point, I was tempted to say that maybe it was in some way related to a concussion he sustained because, mm-hmm. you know, concussions can do any number of things. Sure. I don't have an answer because he's, he's still going to be calling pitches low. He's with the Rangers mm-hmm. now, but he used to be with the Brewers. So it's not like the pitching staff has gotten worse. You know, he right, used to exactly. catch bad pitchers all the time and he was great. So... Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, you you wrote up the article. I haven't read it yet. It's not live yet. But could you come up with anything? Well, so I tried to dig into it as deeply as I could. So he was, of course, the master of the low strike mm-hmm. at his peak period. He was incredible. He was better than anyone else at making low pitches look like strikes and getting that call. And so I looked at his called strike rates relative to the league's year-by-year by location. So I looked like lower third, middle third, upper third of the zone Mm -hmm. and compared it to the league. And so, yeah, back at the beginning of his career, there was a giant gap between his called strike rate on low pitches or in the lower third of the zone and the leagues. And now for the first time ever this season, he is actually worse than the league average on low pitches, which is crazy because that was his skill. That was his signature skill. And the Rangers are throwing lots of low pitches, which you would think would be good for Jonathan Lucroy if he were still the same Jonathan Lucroy. But they've thrown, I think, the second most it was pitches in the lower third of the zone, something like that. But he's not taking advantage of them the way he once was. And he's gotten worse on pitches in the upper third of the zone, too. So he's significantly worse on those. And he is still a little bit above average on pitches in the middle third of the zone. So... It seems like the more he has to move either up or down, the worse he has gotten relative to the league. And we know that framing is a skill that declines over time. It didn't really in Jose Molina's case because he was just a framing god and amazing. (laughs) And if he could somehow be on the field right now, I'm sure he could still frame. But for most guys, there have been some aging curves at Baseball Prospectus, and they've shown that it's a very gradual decline until you get to like 32, 33, and then it starts getting a little more steep. And Luke Ray is close to turning 31, but his decline has been happening, as we said, for years now. So it's strange. It's a very precipitous decline. If you look at guys who were also excellent in 2013 when Lucroy was last excellent and who are still catching now, they're mostly still at least fine or, you know, either average or close to average or, or good. Guys like Russell Martin, Jeff Mathis, Brian McCann, Chris Stewart, Yadier Molina, all those guys are older, significantly older than Lucroy, but they have retained their framing ability more so than he has. So it's definitely an atypical decline. And yeah, I I looked at the areas of the strike zone where he seems to have gotten worse. It's up and down. And I wondered whether it had something to do with A, the pitchers, because maybe the pitcher's command has been bad. And as you said, the Brewers' command couldn't have been great either when he was there. But maybe that's something, except that for one thing, the stats try to take that into account to some extent. Maybe they do so imperfectly. But the Rangers' backup catcher, Robinson Chirinos, is having his best ever 
framing season with the same pitching staff this year. I think he's his innings have pretty much been well distributed across the pitching staff. So whatever is affecting Lucroy there is not affecting Chirinos. So that's one data point that suggests that it's a Lucroy thing more so than a Rangers pitching thing. And I wondered whether it might have something to do with the strike zone. I don't know whether the change in the strike zone over the last several seasons could have something to do with Lucroy's decline in that early on he was incredible at getting low strikes, but then the strike zone moved downward and expanded. And on the surface, it seems like maybe that would help him, but maybe it would actually hurt him because he was such an outlier in his ability to get low strikes that if the zone gets bigger, lower, and other catchers are then able to get strikes in those regions too, maybe his ability in that area stands out less than from the typical catcher. So that is a theory at least about maybe the gradual decline up until this year is just that he hasn't stood out so much in that respect. But that wouldn't explain the drop-off this year because I got updated numbers on the strike zone from John Rogel, the researcher at Fangrass and the Hardball Times, and he says that the area of the strike zone under a, a certain height that is primarily called strike so far this year has been the same as last year. So there hasn't really been any recession in the low strike this year so that can't explain it either so then you just get back to Lucroy just not being as good and that is a hard thing to pinpoint via video and I agree like if you're comparing Molina and Domit or something the absolute extremes it's very easy to see the differences in how they receive pitches but when you're comparing a guy to himself It's a little harder, and you're not watching every single pitch he caught. So, you know, I compared a couple pitches that were almost the same, and he got a strike on it in 2013 and a ball on an almost identical pitch in 2017, and you can kind of see the difference. And I looked at some of the great framing examples that I used to pick out for him (laughs) back in 2013 when I was looking at it all the time, and I compared that to... Some of the pitches on which he has not gotten called strikes this year that he should have. And it looks like there's more movement. Because if you go back and look at Lucre in 2013, he was just incredibly still. It was unbelievable how little he moved. Like even if the pitch was outside or down or whatever, like his head wouldn't move. His body wouldn't move. He wouldn't lean in either direction. He would just kind of twitch his glove and twitch it toward the strike zone. And before you knew it... It was just there and it was a called strike and it it was like he was a statue. And in the examples I looked at, he seems to be moving more now and his head is moving and he's leaning and his shoulders are tilting and his glove doesn't seem as steady. I don't know whether I'm just seeing what I want to see because I know what the stats say Mm -hmm. or whether I'm just kind of cherry picking examples here because I'm looking at strikes he shouldn't have gotten from 2013 and balls that he shouldn't have gotten from 2017 and if you look at any catcher's highlights versus lowlights it will sort of skew your perception of how good they are but it does look to me like he is worse and I think to explain the stats he basically has to be worse and I don't know how a guy who was that good just 
gets dramatically worse in the span of a few years unless it is injuries as you mentioned he's had a series of injuries he had a fractured finger he had some minor hamstring issues he had a fractured toe then he had the concussion so maybe it is just a an accumulation of wear and tear and one thing i looked at i was able to get some command effects mm-hmm. data from sport vision and I don't know exactly how reliable that is when it comes to a pitcher's command, but one thing they do track is the catcher's average glove height at the moment that every pitch is released. And so if you look at the average glove height of the catchers on Lucroy's teams year by year, it does increase. So like in 2011, the Brewers catchers had an average glove height of 17.8 inches, which was the lowest in baseball. And I don't have this year yet, but the Rangers post Lucroy trade last year had a glove height of 21.5 inches, Mm -hmm. which was about four inches higher. So if Lucroy is not getting as low now, that might help explain why he isn't getting the low strike as consistently. And maybe he's not getting as low because his body doesn't work as well. I don't know. Maybe he's got fatigue. He's got the hamstring issues. He's got various accumulation of innings that maybe have made him less mobile or not able to crouch as consistently low as before. And so that could have something to do with it. That's kind of my best theory other than just general more movement, but it does seem to have produced dramatic results. Yeah, that's interesting. I know last year and continued into this year, Luke Roy has had sort of his best like throwing seasons as a catcher. Yeah. He's been the best at throwing out base runners, and you wonder sometimes if there's a connection between being aggressive with the running game and, and waiting mm-hmm. on pitches to catch them, but without knowing anything more, that seems unsatisfying because for that wouldn't really have an effect when there's no one on base or when there's a non runner on base and also so much of that has to do with the pitcher anyway i know whenever we talk about rapid unexplained declines the first name that comes to mind uh it could it can be weird to think of how lucroy could get worse as a framer but you know sean figgins pretty reliable 300 hitter then mm-hmm. with the Mariners, he became something less than even a reliable 200 hitter. Happened almost overnight. Things just happen. And even though you could look at Sean Figgins in 2011, and he would look like 2009 Sean Figgins, uh, the numbers wouldn't. And sometimes the differences between being really good and really bad are subtle. Mm-hmm. With Lucroy, I can think of uh, two possible explanations, one of which you touched on. One, you wonder if there's more movement in his catching now, it's possible that as he's gotten older, it's just a matter of his reaction time is a little bit slower, so he's anticipating worse. The problem, one problem, well, he's making more contact than ever before as a hitter, as Mm -hmm. we sort of discussed earlier, whether that's overcompensating, I don't know, but certainly you think of contact as a hand-eye coordination skill and if someone is making more contact than ever and it's not like his hitting has been terrible then that seems to suggest he's okay but i don't know maybe there's something there he has changed a lot offensively but as you said there is clearly no way for me to know about that glove height thing you are the one who does actual journalism i do not so if lucroy is indeed holding his glove a little higher that certainly could suggest that there's just something in his knees that don't allow him Mm -hmm. to get so low i don't know if the trend for lucroy's teams is sort of mirrored his own framing trend but that is an interesting explanation it could be that Maybe the Brewers pitches pitchers wanted to throw up in the zone more or they didn't want to live down in a way like they constantly did in Lucroy's heyday because I think one thing we always 
would observe is that even when Lucroy was at his best as a pitch framer, the Brewers pitching staff was still bad. And there was something a little weird yeah. about that, although it, I guess, could have been worse. But just because I guess there is a gradual average aging curve, as always, it by no means suggests that every single player should adhere to that same gradual aging curve. And it's mm-hmm. possible Lucroy is just getting older faster than your standard nearly 31-year-old. Yeah, it seems like framing should age more gracefully somehow. I, I don't know why, just maybe because the guy's just sitting there. And it seems like <laughs> you, you should be able to sit there even if you're older and slower. But of course, it's not really just sitting there. It's also anticipating where the pitch is going to go, adjusting to pitches that don't go where they're supposed to go, getting your glove in the perfect position to present the pitch and maybe bring it back a bit toward the strike zone subtly. So there is all this reaction time stuff that you could easily see being affected by the same processes that affect other aspects of play. So I guess you just have to have a mental adjustment to to think of it that way. But it is sort of disappointing because I always enjoyed watching Lucroy be amazing at framing and I guess the best that we have today is Yasmani Grandal, who is really good. I don't know if he's quite as good as Lucroy was at his peak or that Molina was at his peak. It's hard to say because if you put Grandal back in that era, maybe he would look just as good because the competition was worse. But I don't know that this was what the Rangers wanted or expected when they traded Brinson and Ortiz to top 50 prospects for Lucroy last year. Maybe they'd still be happy with Lucroy as an okay framing catcher who hits if he is a terrible framing catcher who hits or doesn't hit as well then obviously that's not really what they had in mind probably when they acquired him. And it's also of interest because the Rangers are making a wild card run, so it has some bearing on the playoff race, and it also has some bearing on Lucre's free agency, mm-hmm. which is coming up at the end of the season. So it does seem as if teams have paid a lot of attention to framing with free agent catchers in the last couple of years. So you wonder if this doesn't reverse itself. Is Lucroy going to be one of those guys who gets a lot less than we would have expected him to or has to wait a long time for a deal? Because if he finishes the season with this sort of performance, then I would imagine that he's not going to have nearly as many suitors or suitors who are willing to pay as much as as they would have otherwise. And and you actually did some Lucroy-related research, I think, maybe early last season about what happens when guys get dramatically better or worse at framing, and you found that, for the most part, that tends to stick. And there have been examples of guys getting better and then getting worse again or vice versa, but for the most part, when a catcher does make a major improvement in this area— he holds on to it at least for a while. So that would suggest that there is less hope than you might think of Lucroy rebounding. So I don't know if he'll end up as the worst, but even getting to average would be a, a pretty big improvement for him now. Yeah, I think the research basically said that if you get a lot better, then it either sticks or you're Chris Iannetta. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe one interesting comparison. We've got Brian McCann. He's a little older than Jonathan Lucroy. And McCann was another guy who who stood out. He was excellent as a framer earlier in his career with the Braves. He was just eyeballing the numbers. Fantastic in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011. 
2012, he was still fantastic. Got a little bit worse. 2013, he got worse by, according to Baseball Prospectus, 14 runs, but he was still above average. 2014, he stayed the same. 2015, he got worse by another about 12 or 13 runs to the point where he was a little below average. And at that point, if you were just looking at the numbers after 2015, you could have said, well, here's Brian McCann. He's declining. He's getting older. And that's going to be about it for him. In 2016, he got all the way back to where he was in 2014. He improved by about 13 runs. And so far this season, he has been about average. So clearly there is a little bit of volatility and you can Mm -hmm. have you can have players bounce back. I don't know exactly why McCann bounced back, but if memory serves, he was with the same team in 2015 and 2016. So it's not like Mm -hmm. there would have been a dramatic change there. Sometimes things just happen. We still don't understand pitch framing that well, but Certainly, you don't. The, there's enough of an established, consistent relationship between the numbers that there's probably a reason that McCann looked worse in 2015 that isn't just random noise. And there's probably a reason that Lucroy looks worse now. And if he goes into the market as a 31 year old contact hitting, low power, ground ball hitting, bad framer, well, that right. looks a lot worse considering just a few years ago he seemed like maybe the best catcher in all of baseball. I love Jonathan Lucroy yeah. just like you do. I want the best for him because he was so underpaid relative to what he was earlier in his career. But I guess I, I'd say it's not bad luck. If this is what he's going to look like, then that's kind of on him. And it just so happens he's going to hit free agency at the very wrong moment for his right. career. Yeah. And maybe also worth noting, I didn't focus on it in the article. I just mentioned it as an aside, but Buster Posey has also had a very big drop off in framing this year. And he's been one of the best framers in addition to being one of the best hitting catchers, which has made him a a perennial MVP candidate. This year, he has been exactly average so far. And uh, that is a a big drop-off that's like almost as big a drop-off as Lucroy has had just starting from a higher point because Posey was elite last year. I I think he maybe had either the most framing run saved or second to Grandal Mm -hmm. possibly, but right up there. And this year he's been exactly average and he's 30 now, so I don't know, maybe the same thing that happened to Lucroy is happening to him, so... That's another thing that Giants fans can be sad about, I guess. <laughs> Just clear the path for Austin Hedges to emerge. Hedges, yeah. maybe not really hitting so far, but his framing to this point mm-hmm. is up to the standard that I think many expected. Austin Hedges, maybe the pitch framer of the future. One of a few, I guess. There's Christian Vasquez. We don't need to sit here and ruminate about all the other young pitch framers in the game. But interesting, I was not aware of Posey. I know he's had something of an offensive resurgence relative to where he's been before and people have delighted at that but i guess it's hard to talk about getting better in one area and then you sort of need to acknowledge that he's gotten worse in another area so lucroy at Mm -hmm. least not alone (laughs) yeah all right so we talked about framing it is real we do value it (laughs) but unfortunately we do not value lucroy's the way we once did by the way this is just ben now post episode Based on a couple of comments I got on my article, I know that some of you are probably wondering this now. Is it possible that Lucroy's framing has gotten worse because umpires became aware of his reputation for being good at framing and have been extra vigilant or even vindictive about making sure that he didn't steal extra strikes from them? It is possible. I don't think there's a great way to either prove or disprove it. I'm sort of skeptical that that could be the bulk of the reason. For one thing, I don't know why Lucroy's framing would suddenly take a hit in 2000. 
2017 because of that, since I think he was really celebrated for framing a few years ago, not so much in the last couple of years. And there have been a lot of other guys who got press as good framers who haven't declined at all or nearly as much as Lucroy. Jose Molina got a lot of attention for framing, but he was great right up until he retired. Russell Martin's gotten a lot of press. Yasmani Grandal's gotten a lot of press. He still frames well. So it's a reasonable theory. Maybe it matters on the margins. I don't really buy it so much as a primary cause, but I can't rule it out. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners have already pledged their support. Include Matthew Whitrock, Matt Eddigson, Sean McAvoy, Andy Leesner, and Jeremy Kessler. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. If you're looking for something else to listen to, Michael Bauman and I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up. We talked to Levi Weaver about the Rangers and to Tim Healy about the Marlins and Giancarlo Stanton's dissatisfaction and contract situation. Also, friend of the podcast, former Effectively Wild guest, C. Trent Rosecrans, who covers the Reds, of course, for the Cincinnati Inquirer. Since it seems like we talk about the Reds on this podcast now, I think it's probably okay to tell you that Trent's doing a cool narrative podcast now. He and Zach Buchanan do one just talking about the Reds for the Inquirer, but Trent's doing one now called Great American Dream, where he follows Reds minor league prospect Shed Long on his minor league journey. So there are episodes about the language barrier, episodes about learning how to live in the minor leagues, every aspect of minor league life. It's a cool idea. They're doing it every two weeks. They have an upcoming episode about race and African-Americans in baseball. So check it out at Cincinnati.com slash series slash Great American Dream. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you soon. Andy.